When one thinks of seasonal affairs in Springfield, Halloween comes to mind first, and rightly so. However, like all American sitcoms, The Simpsons has produced a number of Christmas episodes. Hell, because of circumstances we'll get into later on, The Simpsons is one of the few major TV programs to have its debut story take place during the holiday season. For this recording, we'll be taking a closer look at three Yuletide episodes of this pop culture monolith. As per usual, the text and subtext of each story reveals numerous details of the world that shaped it and also the world that it helped shape, and we'll be trying to uncover certain elements of it through the, over the course of the discussion. My name is Ryan. This is a real deep dive. All right, joining me on this one is my sister Cheryl. Hello. And her brother Sylvan. Hello. All right, so this was your suggestion for this year's Christmas podcast episode. Yep. I think it was between this and Meet Me in St. Louis. Uh, why'd you settle on this? Because I forgot to commit to something earlier in the week, and I thought it would be mean to huck Meet Me in St. Louis at you at the last possible minute. All right, yeah. I mean, I had to put together a page of notes one way or the other, but with The Simpsons, I come with a lot of pre-existing knowledge because Simpsons. Yeah, I mean, we pretty much have these episodes committed to memory, I think, so... Simpsons oh. is our family's love language. <laughs> also, um, my prior podcast episode about Conan O'Brien's Simpsons episode became one of the most popular ones, so this one's probably going to do okay. Alright, so even though I have done a Simpsons podcast episode before, I didn't go into the creation of the show on there. And since we're covering the first episode of the show, I figured I'd do a rundown leading up to Simpsons Roasting on an Open Fire, the first of the three Christmas episodes we're talking about. James L. Brooks, a producer on the Tracy Ullman show, among other things, Mary Tyler Moore, but for this case, Tracy Ullman's the relevant one, on the fledgling Fox network, was looking to feature short animated interstitials to run in between the various sketches on the program. Wanting the cartoons to have like an alternative underground comics vibe, he reached out to Matt Groening, a cartoonist whose Life in Hell strip had built a strong cult audience via syndication across free newspapers distributed throughout major American cities. I think in the uh, metro Boston area, it, w it was like the Phoenix, but like during the 70s and 80s, there was like every major city had at least a couple of them. Oh, and the Weekly Dig. The Weekly Dig still exists. I think the Phoenix went under. That's kind of funny when you think about it. Well, it, yeah, I mean, I suppose it could be resurrected, but it's not going to. Classified ads featuring sex workers was the sort of bread and butter of these type of periodicals, and, you know, that whole thing has moved online. Anyways, Graining was initially going to pitch a Life in Hell cartoon for Tracy Ullman, but while waiting outside of Brooks's office, it suddenly dawned on him that he would lose the intellectual property rights to his long-running and successful comic if Fox bought his proposal. When Brooks called him in, Groening improvised a pitch about a dysfunctional family that transgressively lampooned family sitcom tropes from Ozzie and Harriet to The Cosby Show. This was so last minute that Groening used the names of his actual family members for his characters. Groening's parents are named Homer and Marge. He has two younger siblings named Lisa and Maggie. That's awesome. I do not know how they feel about this. I think that that would have been a very interesting conversation to be a part of once The Simpsons took off. He has older siblings who are not characters on the show. 
Uh, yeah, one of his siblings is named Patty, so he really was just pulling <laughs> from his life. Although he ran with it. I read, too, some, a lot of the incidental characters are named after streets in his hometown, and he was going to try to keep that going, but he ran out of steam. That's really cute. I like that. Bart is the stand-in for Matt himself, but Bart is an anagram for brat. Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, Simpson Shorts first appeared on the Tracy Allman Show on April 19th of 1987. Graining on his part had submitted crude, loose character sketches with the assumption that trained animators would clean up and improve upon them, but the figures were just retraced for the first few segments, which is why early <laughs> Simpsons looks as weird as it does. Later on, on a commentary for Futurama, Graining mentions that one of the animators on Futurama has a graining style, which just involves him drawing with his non-dominant hand. He's <laughs> like, whenever I think that the world is fair, I remind myself that I sign his checks. <laughs> All of the Ullman shorts were directed by David Silverman, who would also direct most of the episodes on season one and is largely involved with the show up to the present day he directed the movie. Fox expressed interest in spitting off The Simpsons into its own show, but executives were unsure if the characters could sustain 22-minute plots. They initially suggested that Simpsons episodes be a couple of, like, short pieces stitched together. Is that like the bathtub short? Yeah, that was an Ullman sketch. Okay, I gotcha. James L. Brooks, since he was, you know, a powerful media figure even then, eventually squeezed Fox's arm until they agreed to give total creative control over to the writing staff and not interfere. Ooh. And uh, eventually, they ordered 13 episodes. The first episode was intended to be Some Enchanted Evening, the one where Bart and Lisa foiled the babysitter bandit, but that one ran into severe animation problems and was ultimately completed in time to serve as the season one finale. Simpsons Roasting on an Open Fire, that title was come up with Al Jean, even though it's called The Simpsons Christmas Special in the actual episode itself, was the eighth episode to begin production. But Fox felt that it was the strongest episode and selected it to premiere the series. This is why the animation and characterization is a bit more advanced than the uh, immediate following episodes, and why the Simpsons don't seem to have a dog until episode 9. I had never noticed that. <laughs> I haven't really gone back to the first season ever. It initially aired on December 17th, 1989, making it the only Simpsons episode to air during the 1980s. Alright, plot recap for it. All right, we open with the Springfield Elementary School Christmas pageant, and after that concludes, the Simpsons prepare for the holiday season. Bart and Lisa write letters to Santa, with Lisa asking for a pony, which Marge tries to tactfully dodge by claiming that there wouldn't be enough room for one in Santa's sleigh. And Bart wants a tattoo, which Marge and Homer forbid him from getting for different reasons. Uh, the next day, Marge takes the kids Christmas shopping at the mall, but Bart goes behind their backs and sneaks away to get a tattoo that reads Mother on his arm, thinking that Marge will like it if it's a tribute to her. Before the artist can finish the tattoo, Marge finds Bart and drags him to the dermatologist to have it removed. It's like a couple of stores down, which leads most of us to suspect that the tattoo artist and dermatologist are in cahoots. She is forced to spend the family's entire holiday budget on the procedure, believing that Homer's Christmas bonus will cover gift expenses. 
Meanwhile, at the nuclear power plant, Homer's boss, Mr. Burns, cancels this year's employee Christmas bonus because, you know, he wants to uh, upgrade the safety procedures without uh, interfering with uh, executive bonuses. That feels painfully relevant. <laughs> When he learns that Marge spent the family's holiday money on tattoo removal, Homer moonlights as a shopping mall Santa at the suggestion of his friend Barney Gumble. While at the mall on Christmas Eve, Bart removes Santa's beard on a dare, exposing Homer's secret. Weird that Bart didn't recognize Homer with the Santa beard on. Bart apologizes for the prank and praises his father for making an effort to give the family a proper Christmas, through a backhanded compliment. After Homer's Santa gig pays far less than expected due to the deductions for training in uniform, $13, he and Bart receive a Greyhound racing tip from Barney. At Springfield Downs, Homer bets all his money on a last-minute entry named Santa's Little Helper, a 99-to-1 long shot. The prospective Christmas miracle, however, fails to manifest and the Greyhound finishes last. As Homer and Bart leave the track, they see the dog's owner yell and abandon him for losing the race. Bart pleads with Homer to keep the dog as a pet and they return home, where Homer begins confessing to not getting his Christmas bonus, but is interrupted when Bart introduces Santa's little helper to the others. The family is overjoyed by this gesture, and all ends well. Okay, for the production of this, uh, Simpsons Roasting on an Open Fire was written by Mimi Pond, an alternative cartoonist specializing in graphic memoir. It is her only Simpsons writing credit. Do you know if it, like, if it went badly for her, or...? Yes, Pond has negative memories of her Simpsons experience. Uh, she said it was an uncomfortable distraction from her cartooning commitments, and said that she was denied a staff writing job because one of the showrunners wanted no women on the show's writing staff. Ooh. She did not name names, but the showrunners at the time were Graining, James L. Brooks, and Sam Simon. So it's one of them. Well... That's disappointing. Did any of them jump team eventually? Sam Simon has a reputation for being a brilliant writer, but a combative and irritating person who is difficult to like on a personal level, and he stopped his direct involvement with the show by season three. A lot of people speculate that it was him, especially since Graining and Brooks work with female writers with no problems in other instances. Also, Simon is an awkward, combative person. When he died, he left all his money to uh, animal rescues because he thought dogs and cats are better than people, which, you know, can't blame him for that. Anyways, that's just wild speculation. Little things I picked up. The Santas and Many Land segment was lifted from a Life in Hell comic. Most early Simpsons episodes would recycle at least one or two Life in Hell concepts. There is an ongoing debate as to what Matt Craning is to The Simpsons exactly. <laughs> Once again, he wasn't a, a terribly refined artist, as we already covered. Uh, he only has a handful of writing credits. Producer could mean anything. Uh, a lot of people speculate that he is an affable frontman who is, you know, the likable guy to interview because Brooks is too intimidating and Simon is, um, we already talked about Simon. Gross. He's gross. <laughs> <laughs> but an animal lover. Whereas, you know, I like Matt Groening. He always comes off as very friendly and nice. He reminds me of Dad. Yeah, he yeah. seems Yeah. Unless he's showing you out of his office. Well, what Matt's meant to say, according to his attorneys. <laughs> the episode is occasionally credited with popularizing the uh, schoolyard rephrasing of the lyrics of Jingle Bells. Graining is openly confused as to why people would think this, as he remembered Batman smelling when he was a small child. I was just wondering the other day how far back that one goes. 
The most notable animation error in this episode is when Lisa is performing at the pageant and appears to be naked from the waist down. She was supposed to be wearing tights, but graining blames confusion between the American team and the Korean ink and paint department, who did not color in her tights. Cricket noises. <laughs> I mean, I assumed she wasn't supposed to be naked, but yeah, that, that part did always catch my attention as odd. Uh, one of the key animators on the episode is Eric Stefani, who is best known for being the brother of Gwen Stefani. That's sad for Eric Stefani. <laughs> I mean, he, he also was a creative force in No Doubt. Yeah, he co-wrote the lyrics for Don't Speak. Just saying, like, that's just a, that's a sad note for him. It's like, hey, it's so-and-so's brother. It doesn't seem to bother him because for the Homer Palooza episode, he snuck No Doubt into the background. That's cute. This is the first appearance of, among other characters, Principal Skinner, Milhouse, Ralph, although his voice is way off, Sherry and Terry, Moe, Mr. Burns, Barney, Patty and Selma, Abe Simpson, Ned Flanders, Todd Flanders, also with the wrong voice, and of course Santa's little helper. This is also Smithers' first appearance, but he only shows up on the intercom, so you don't get to be weirded out by, you know, the fact that he's black the first few episodes and they decide to not make him black later on. Was that why he was color different? I just assumed it was a lighting thing. No, they initially made Mr. Smithers black, but then they decided that a, like, subservient toady to a white businessman wouldn't have been a great move for, like, one of the three black characters on the show. Yep. Yeah, not wrong. <laughs> Baxter Stockman on the Ninja Turtles was made white for the same reason. He's black in the comics. Hmm. Barney in this episode has blonde hair. It was decided to change his hair after they figured that uh, it would be best to have only Bart, Lisa, and Maggie be blonde and have their, like, hair fade into their heads. They didn't want any other Simpsons characters to have that going on. Yeah, fade in. Hmm. For the reception of this episode, it was viewed by 13.4 million people, um, million homes rather, making it the second highest rated show on Fox up to that point. The Simpsons was a breakout hit from the jump. And we were one of those families. I have no memory of this. Well, yes, it was in 1989. You were very tiny. <laughs> Two years old, yes. This episode was nominated for two Emmys for Outstanding Animated Program and Outstanding Editing on a Miniseries or Special. It lost both categories, but it lost Outstanding Animated Program to the Simpsons episode Life on the Fast Lane. Well, that's gonna feel good. Yeah, that is the one where um, Homer gives Marge a bowling ball for a present and then she is tempted by Jacques. Yeah, that was one of John Schwartzwelder's uh, early hits. He's often argued as the greatest Simpsons writer. Al Jean once proposed that the very last Simpsons episode, when they finally finished the series, should end with the family gathering to attend a Christmas pageant at the school, implying that the show exists on an endless time loop. I do like that idea. I kind of like it. However, he said that since he has publicly discussed this, that is probably not what the last episode's going to be. Uh, also, the show got praised by animal rights activists for shining a light on how racing dogs are abused and abandoned when they are no longer useful at the dog track. The writers claimed that, while that is nice, they were completely ignorant of this phenomenon while they were putting the episode together. <laughs> they just wanted uh, Santa's little helper to be a spiritual kin to the Simpsons by being a loser, I assume. Yeah, yeah, one of the last lines is like, oh, he's a pathetic loser failure, which means he fits right in. 
I think uh, one of my favorite parts of this episode, probably my favorite, is when they're like, well, we're going to at least wait until our dog finishes. <laughs> Never mind, let's go. <laughs> one thing that jumped out at me about this episode, which I haven't watched in years, is that, especially since we watched two, like, Golden Age Simpsons episodes immediately after this, is that it takes its time. Like, there are jokes, but it isn't, like, rapid fire. Because the other two episodes we watched, there's a joke every 30 seconds or so. Like, beat by beat by beat, like clockwork. Like, they're still figuring out their rhythm on the on the first one, which, you know, shouldn't come as a surprise. Uh, yeah, in terms of themes for this episode, I wrote down transgression. Because that's something that pops up, especially in the first few years of the show. I mean, it's hard to visualize this now when The Simpsons is a long-running, influential cultural institution that has gotten to the point where there are theme park rides named after them. I mean, if there's an S-class barrier for cartoon characters, I think it's when they build a roller coaster. I mean, I kind of like that. My bar was set at video games, so... Lots of characters have video games, but in terms of theme park rides, you got Mickey Mouse, Bugs Bunny, and then The Simpsons, and... I can't think of any others right now. Bunch of superheroes. Oh yeah, a bunch of superheroes. Batman counts. But yeah, uh, The Simpsons was seen as bold, dangerous, and anti-establishment at the time of its premiere. Yeah, I remember like other kids at school thinking it was weird that we got to like sit down and watch it as a family because they weren't allowed to watch The Simpsons. Oh, 100%. Yeah, that was one of those things where it's like, no, my family's not like other families. I can watch any cartoon I want, including weird ones where ladies have... Hand feet. President George H.W. Bush chastised the program's subversive message at the time, which also rings really weird because, like, creepy Republican politicians like Ted Cruz in the modern day try to, like, humanize themselves by declaring their public fandom for the show. So, Bush talking about not liking the show, does that have anything to do with Two Bad Neighbors? A little bit. A little bit. <laughs> <laughs> It's also just a little weird to me that a bunch of Republicans like a very liberal show. Republicans don't always seem to notice when they're the butt of jokes. Yeah, yeah. another thing that is freakish in retrospect is that this first episode particularly frames The Simpsons as financially struggling working class schlubs. A uh, stark contrast to the squeaky clean characters generally found on, say, Leave it to Beaver up to and including Full House. Whereas, you know, nowadays the idea of a single parent household or yielding enough money in order to, like, comfortably have a middle class existence is beyond the reach of most Americans. Even Full House couldn't do it. He had to bring in his friends to help support his children. God, and that house. Oh my god, that house. I feel like Grimes every time I watch these episodes now where I'm like, oh yeah, that's poverty. Your two cars and your four-bedroom house with two living rooms and a dining room. And Frank Grimes, that's season eight. That's like seven years later. <laughs> it didn't really, it didn't take long for The Simpsons to start becoming unattainable. Thanks, neoliberalism. I mean, I suspect, too, though, that part of, like, the reason why the house is so ridiculous and big is just because it's easier for the, the writing than having the kids share bedrooms and shit. Well, uh, yeah, another reason why, like, everyone in Friends is living in New York apartments that nobody could possibly afford on the character's stated jobs is just because they need three cameras on that set, so it's gotta be that big. Well, I kind of always assumed that location had a lot to do with how affordable that house was. They have the a, a shitty house in a, a place that always has a tire fire going. 
Yeah, another thing that dates the first few seasons of The Simpsons very definitively in the past is when Matt Groening is asked about, like, the genesis of the show. And some people occasionally ask him, did you think it would work? Or did you think you were going to be canceled, like, after three episodes? And Groening is like, no, I was always confident that it was going to be successful. And they asked him why. And he said, I think there's an appeal to watching cartoons at night. Because cartoons, when Granny was growing up, was a morning and, and after school thing. But then every now and again, you had something like the Flintstones, where like you're watching cartoons with your family at 8 p.m. There's just something weird and cool about that. And in our year of the Lord, 2022, that's completely gone. You can watch cartoons at 10 at night. And The Simpsons has spawned like dozens upon dozens of imitators. Adult animated sitcoms are like de rigueur now. So it's, it's weird being like, yeah, between Wait Till Your Father Gets Home and The Simpsons, there was basically nothing. This was the first attempt at that in a while. And Grading's optimism was probably naive, but he ended up being right. Like, there is a market for this. There is an audience for this. The Simpsons have been running for over 30 years, and now we have South Park and Family Guy and Big Mouth and BoJack Horseman and everything else. Venture Brothers! That, too. All right, and the next one we're going to be talking about is Marge Be Not Proud. Jumping forward a bit. <laughs> this is one of my favorite episodes of all time. Season 7, episode 11, and uh, premiered in 1995. All right, plot recap for that one. Bart, cognizant of the Christmas season in full swing, expresses his desire for the new video game Bone Storm to buy his presence. Storm or go to hell. That's their tagline. <laughs> but Marge refuses to buy it because of its violence and cost. Unable to rent it or convince Milhouse to share his copy, Bart visits the local try-and-save department store to pine away at the game's display case. Sylvan, you pointed out you felt very called out by that gag. Oh my god, I used to stand in front of action figures and look at them sadly and think that that was going to happen. And then watching this episode, so you said 95, right? Yeah. So yeah, I was I was about nine years old, like, oh, yeah, that's something that they're laughing at because it would never happen, right? <laughs> so, question, you're an adult now with your own money. Have you ever bought a child anything because they were looking at it sadly? Like a kid you didn't know? I've been, like, tempted sometimes to buy things for kids that I, I work with at the youth group and then have to stop myself from doing so because that's, like, crossing a line with them socially. But no, I have never walked into a toy store or something and bought a strange kid a toy. I yeah. was just curious. I'm like, did it ever come full circle where you're like, now's my chance to set it right? What should have happened when I was a kid? And then being like, nope, this is uncomfortable. Yeah, I'm a 37-year-old man. If I talk to strange children I don't know, someone's going to call the police. <laughs> Anyways, Jimbo Jones and Nelson Munt spot Bart and convince him to steal the game, but he is caught by security in the parking lot. The guard calls. Very call zealous security guard. More on him later. <laughs> the guard calls Homer and Marge, but leaves a message on the answering machine that's dated because they are not home. The guard then orders Bart to leave the store and threatens criminal charges if he is seen on the premises again. Bart rushes home and successfully intercepts the message in the answering machine tape by switching out the tape, ask your parents, with Alan Sherman's Hello Mutta, Hello Fada, ask your grandparents. <laughs> uh, unaware of Bart's crime, Marge takes the family to the same store to get their annual Christmas picture taken. Bart is spotted by the guard and is apprehended while posing for the family portrait. Incredulous at the guard's claim, Marge is severely disillusioned when the guard shows her security footage of Bart shoplifting. Bart tries to apologize to Marge at home, but she coldly rebuffs him and sends him to bed. 
Concerned that she may be mothering Bart too much, Marge begins leaving him out of family activities like making snow statues, decorating the Christmas tree, and tuck-in time. She sings him a little song when she tucks him in at night. Then pats his caboose. <laughs> Shaken by this and fearful that he's lost Marge's love, Bart makes several pathetic attempts to participate in family traditions. Oh my god, that's little Bart Snowman. <laughs> and when that fails, convinces Milhouse's mother Luann to spend time with him. Uh, I think that's just, that's way more sad than the snowman. Because ultimately, <laughs> he, me I'm good. He gets rejected. And you're like, oh. Also, that gaggle. Bart swearing. <laughs> Bart then visits the try and save and returns home with a bulge in his coat. Seeing him attempting to sneak upstairs without being seen, Marge assumes that Bart has shoplifted again and confronts him. This forces Bart to reveal that he has bought a nice photo of himself to make up for the one he ruined earlier. Overjoyed at the gesture, Marge gives Bart his present early, the golf simulator video game, Lee Carvalho's Putting Challenge. <laughs> you may recognize from internet memes. She was told that this was the hot new video game that all the kids wanted. Oh my god. Though underwhelmed, Bart bites his tongue, thanks his mother, and they reconcile. Uh, that cut the, of Marge's face. When the game slides down and she's smiling because she's so happy she got him what he wanted. So like, can you, we have all been there. Right? I'm like, can you, what's, what's the first thing that pops into your head? Honestly, actually, you, you, you tell yours first. I'll tell mine after. I actually have a different one from when I was a total brat, but I'll start off with the Aladdin, the wrong Aladdin. Oh, yes. Uh, if you are Gen Z or younger, back in the 90s during the height of the Disney Renaissance, a cheap rinky-dink uh, animation company would put out a budget knockoff of whatever the big Disney movie was going to be a couple of months before it hit theaters. So clueless grandparents would buy a copy of Crappy Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin to give to their kids. <laughs> we had the Aladdin. And the Hercules. Yep. But yeah, my, my story is, this was in, in high school. Our mother had a very difficult time navigating our Christmas lists. Eventually, I started using Google and just like copying images of what I wanted and putting those together in the list. And she would show up at the store and hand the list with the pictures to the sales clerks. And they found that very amusing, but it was effective. Before I got that methodology down, I got really obsessed with Stevie Nicks and I asked for Stevie Nicks CDs. And mom got me a really awful DVD that was much more expensive back in the day. And it was from a point in her career where her voice was just absolutely shredded. I, I really wanted the CDs. I didn't get a single CD I asked for. But mom was so happy because she got me that Stevie Nicks thing that I really, really wanted. So I smiled, I nodded, and then I went downstairs into the basement and cried. Oh, oh, oh yeah! Because, <laughs> you know, I was young enough to not be able to afford CDs, uh, Gen Zers or whatever. They used to be really expensive. I actually really enjoy The Wrong Aladdin. Like, I have fond memories <laughs> of it now. Alright, this episode is written by Mike Scully, who was hired to replace Conan O'Brien after O'Brien got his own talk show. Scully's earliest episodes were based on pitches given to Brooks by other writers, including Lisa's Rival, which was dreamed up by O'Brien. It was about a kid who was possibly smarter than Lisa coming into Springfield Elementary and threatening Lisa intellectually. 
Another one he did early was a um, one that Al Jean and Mike Reese pitched, uh, the 2001 Greyhounds episode. Oh, that one is so good. Yeah, yeah. If you look at Scully's list, a lot of bangers. Uh, the first Scully episode... See my list? <laughs> Made of real gorilla chest. The first Scully episode that he came up with on his own was Lisa on Ice, based on his own childhood experiences with Pee Wee Hockey. I love that episode! Marge Be Not Proud is also semi-autobiographical, derived from Scully's boyhood incident of being pressured into shoplifting a week before Christmas by cool older kids and getting caught in the parking lot and horribly disappointing his mother. Oh, so that's why it's got that, like, strong emotional core to it. It's real. Scully has frequently joked about getting paid for reliving his youthful guilt. Rama. <laughs> Bill Oakley, showrunner at the time, points out that Scully was the first person to even try to pitch a Christmas episode. Simpsons roasting on an open fire had gained mythic status amongst comedy writers, especially since it was the very first Simpsons episode, and nobody else had ever tried to follow it up before. So I'll... that explains the long run without one. Particularly notable in this one is Lawrence Tierney's guest spot as the department store security guard. This was labeled by showrunner Josh Weinstein as the craziest recording session of his tenure on the show. Tierney, who had attained a significant reputation as a loose cannon that many people did not want to work with, belligerently threatened any show employee that irritated him. He refused to perform lines if he didn't understand why they were funny, and he kept trying to do a southern accent even though he was brought on the show because of his gravelly character actor baritone. That... So, does this have anything to do with the part where he's trying to eat the cheese and cracker snack and he starts swearing at it? Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> I always wondered about that. Yeah, I don't know if you've seen Tyranny in too many things. No. no. Like, he's just all broadcut to me. Well, you've seen Reservoir Dogs. Who's he in Reservoir Dogs? He's a crime boss. Honestly, I kind of stopped watching Tarantino movies a long time ago. I don't really even, I don't remember it. Motherfucker looks exactly like the thing. Anyways, that being said, Oakley and Weinstein said that they very much liked Tierney's performance and they consider him one of the best guest spots in the show in the final result, even if getting him in the recording booth and getting him to say the lines was a struggle. Another thing I picked up is that at some point, a Simpsons fan who is a programmer created a playable version of Lee Carvalho's putting challenge (laughs) and uploaded it to the internet in 2020. In retrospect, it's surprising that it took until 2020 for someone to do this. Absolutely. But yes, I played it online. Is it fun? Not really. (laughs) So it's like a golf game. Yes. (laughs) But you can select power drive in person if you felt like it. I assume you can get the ball into the parking lot? Yes, you can. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I was a little disappointed when I played other golf video games and that wasn't on the table. (laughs) You've played other golf video games? One One of our uncles had it for the Nintendo. And then there were also fishing games and they were equally upsettingly boring. Oh, I liked the fishing game that Auntie Donna had. I hated it so much the fish were creepy and it was boring and I didn't understand what I was doing the whole time. Okay, uh, for themes for this, the first one I wrote down was the relationship between Bart and Marge. Scully is mainly seen as a Lisa writer. Uh, He has five daughters, and he puts a lot of them into Lisa based on his interactions with them. Lisa is his favorite character, and he sees Lisa and Homer as the strongest dynamic in the main cast, and a lot of his writing was focused on that. A good number of the Lisa and Homer episodes are either produced or written by Scully. So yeah, it's a little weird that one of the defining um, Lisa writers wrote what many see as the core Barton Marge episode. 
Comedy writing and really writing in general often stresses that a good catalyst for narrative tension is to take the two characters who have the least amount of, uh, in common and force them to interact with each other. Homer and Lisa definitely fit this paradigm, but I think that Bart and Marge do as well, even though not nearly as many cultural commentators tend to highlight it. You know, because Marge is very naive and oblivious, but she's also arguably the ethical backbone of the family. She lapses far less often than Lisa does, I'd say. And Bart can be impulsive and irresponsible, but he demonstrably craves his mother's love and approval, which is highlighted in this episode in particular, I'd say. Oh, absolutely. And it's just such a thing, like the, the mom worrying about whether her son is growing into the type of person that she wants him to be. Like, that's where the tension from the episode comes from, really. Bart and Marge not communicating what's really going on in their heads very well after the incident. Marge is just trying to figure out how best to guide him, and she accidentally sends him on the spiral where he's worried about losing her love. I don't know, a lot of parents that I know have, have dealt with that, that moment of panic of like, oh god, my kid did something shitty. Am I fucking this all up? I've heard from many sources that if you are terrified that you are fucking up your kid, you're probably doing okay. The parents who fuck up their kids are the ones who are not worried if they're fucking up their kids. Yes, also true. Well, also, and like some of it too is like you can have really shitty parents and turn out okay. Uh, yeah, uh, another thing that I think is highlighted in this episode that comes up a lot is that uh, Bart is a troublemaker largely because he is often ignored and falls beneath the cracks. He's an underachiever because the school is underfunded, the parents are overworked, nobody has time to nurture him properly. And that is highlighted and emphasized whenever Bart thrives, because Bart always thrives when he's given supportive attention or is challenged. Like the bit where Bart gets expelled and Marge starts tutoring him himself, Bart starts learning things, Bart gets smarter. Or, you know, whenever Sideshow Bob shows up and has a plot that needs to be foiled, Bart takes charge. Alright, the uh, next thing I wrote down was sentiment. I consider Marge be not proud to be an all-timer, but amongst the Simpsons fan community when I looked into it, a lot of people consider this one to be like a B- or a C+. Really? I know. Was there like a reason why? The Simpsons fanatics that I came across, like the ones who wrote books and stuff about the show, consider Marge Be Not Proud to be a lesser entry because of its attempts to infuse seasonal heart into the story. They don't like the sentimental aspects of it. They feel it's unearned. Interesting, because I think that's its core strength. I think it's a really good example of characterization. There's growth, the, the miscommunication and coming together again at the end. But then again, I see a lot of hardcore Simpsons fans complaining about Lisa episodes being weak ones, and those are obviously my favorites. Yeah, strong disagree for me as well. Uh, I feel that Marge Be Not Proud earns its sentiment. I ain't that bit where Bart builds the crappy snowman from the snow underneath the car. And when he, he wants to watch Mrs. Van Houten do mom things. I'm not disagreeing with you. Uh, it's just, it's cute watching you guys bond like that. You're like, oh, Bart. <laughs> also, I have a celebrity endorsement. Raphael Bob Waksberg. Oh, yeah. Cites Marge Be Not Proud as his favorite Simpsons episode. He claims that its balance of sincerity, humanism, and well-crafted humor was a core influence on BoJack Horseman. Fuck yeah. So yeah, take that guy who wrote Unauthorized Simpsons Companion. <laughs> <laughs>
Provided that you're a BoJack Horseman fan. I don't know you. Maybe you aren't. And also listen to this podcast. <laughs> yeah, I know. A whole lot of variables have to come into place for you to get burned by that. But if it does, please let us know because that would be fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, the last episode we're talking about is uh, Miracle on Evergreen Terrace, Season 9, Episode 10, which initially aired in 1997. All right. This was about the time when I was starting to not sit down every week and watch The Simpsons. I do remember watching this episode when it aired, though. Yeah, more on that in a bit. At bedtime on Christmas Eve, the family is making last-minute preparations at home. Marge tells everyone that no one can open their presents until 7 a.m. the next morning, and she confiscates all the alarm clocks in order to ensure this happening. She wants everyone to celebrate Christmas morning as a family for once. Bart, however, eagerly drinks 12 glasses of water so he can wake up early needing to pee and can therefore unwrap his gifts before anyone else. Looking at you, Sylvan. <laughs> I, I used to get the households up at like 4 a.m. Bart gets up at 5. <laughs> You're worse than Bart. <laughs> yup. One of Bart's presents is a remote-controlled fire truck that he uses to spray water accidentally on an overloaded electrical socket, causing an inferno that engulfs the plastic Christmas tree, thereby destroying all of the presents beneath it. Panicked, Bart hides the evidence beneath the snow in the yard. When the family comes downstairs to find the tree and presents gone, Bart makes up a story about how he caught a burglar taking off with the tree and presents. The police investigate, and local news anchor Kent Brockman does a human interest story on the case. As a result of the report, everyone in Springfield digs deep to give the Simpsons a new Christmas tree and cash donations amounting to $15,000. Homer uses this to buy a new car, but immediately destroys the vehicle after skidding into a frozen lake. As Sylvan pointed out, if all our Christmas presents were destroyed, and we got donations amounting to $15,000, and Mom and Dad used it to buy a new car, we'd have been pissed. At least one toy. At least one. I would have been excited, and then I would have had to have been told to be mad, and then I would have been like, yeah! Whatever, like, cool, new car. Yeah, Bart and Lisa just go along with it, though. The next morning, a guilt-ridden Bart admits the truth to his family. Though furious, they go along with the lie when Brockman and his news crew immediately arrive to do a follow-up story. When a cameraman, with help from Santa's little helper, finds the tree's remains in the front yard, the family is forced to explain the truth. Springfield citizens, feeling scammed, shun them in public and mail them angry letters demanding that they pay back the $15,000. And throw things in and through the window. Including a pineapple on a fishing line. It's when the pineapple comes back that that joke really lands for me. <laughs> yeah, that's one of those neat little Simpsons absurdist gags. There's 11 behind that rock. <laughs> Marge attempts to raise the money by appearing on Jeopardy, only to end the episode with negative $5,200 and be confronted for it by Alex Trebek and several thuggish game judges. She ain't getting the home version. The official Simpsons wiki felt the need to point out to me that if you get a negative score in Jeopardy, you don't actually have to pay the show anything. Why would anybody think that? <laughs> Listen, Trebek asked you if he understood the rules, and you said yes. <laughs> Dejected, the Simpsons arrive home to find the citizens of Springfield and Trebek gathered on their lawn. And they're all very happy to see them and are friendly, and Marge initially thinks that they have forgiven them. And while the townsfolk have forgiven them, that is because they've chosen to rectify the conflict by looting their home. 
The family is initially crestfallen, but they manage to recover a bit of holiday spirit by playfully fighting over a tattered washcloth, the only item in the home that wasn't stolen. Okay, uh, this is the ninth season, which is when Scully had been promoted to showrunner. This is a position he would hold until season 12. Seasons 9 through 12 have a um, distinctive flavor amongst the Simpsons aficionados. Some people blame Scully for the program's measured decline during this period. Well, this is something that Scully often jokes about in interviews. Whenever asked about the show's longevity, he's just like, Well, you know what? If you lower your standards enough, it'll run forever. I mean, those seasons are shaky, but there are still some good episodes in them, and I think this is one of them. This episode was written by Ron Haig. He was hired because he was an early writer on Seinfeld and also contributed a great deal to Ren and Stimpy and Rocco's Modern Life. Okay, well, I like, I like that last one. <laughs> <laughs> His very first episode was Homer's Phobia, which he won an Emmy for. I don't know that one. When John Waters is on as Homer's gay friend. And I do remember John Waters being animated on The Simpsons. Okay, we'll rewatch that one sometime. It's interesting. Haig also wrote Canine Mutiny and Dumbbell Indemnity. Okay, so yeah, those are some good episodes. Is he wearing, like, a lot of pink in that episode? I do remember. Those was when he, told me, when he was uh, afraid of gay people. Yeah. I do remember that. Everybody dance now! We work hard, we play hard. And there's also a Christmas uh, bit in that episode. So hey, it all ties together. <laughs> Anyways, Hay came up with the concept of Miracle and Evergreen Terrace when he came across a local news story about an orphanage being burglarized just before the holidays and the community coming together to donating more than what was stolen. Haig used this feel-good story to construct what he called an inverted version of It's a Wonderful Life. Haig's hometown of Missoula, Montana is referenced by Krusty in the episode, and various animators cameo in Bart's dream sequence. They were the people in the crowd screaming, Give me a P! P! Give me an E! E! Go, go, go! P, P, P! <laughs> yeah, I love that bit. I think it's one of the strongest jokes in, I mean, possibly the whole series. Oh, it's right up there with the candy dream. I love that candy fantasy where he eats the dog's lunch. <laughs> we were talking about chocolate? <laughs> it was 15 minutes ago. Alright, for themes for this one, first one I wrote down was Going Back to the Well. This is often perceived as one of the weakest Simpsons Christmas episodes. I know, we're going against the fans on like two out of three. Eh, um, they can be wrong. I mean, this follows the tried-and-true formula of Bart does something wrong, feels guilty for it, and then fesses up. They are true that we have done this one before. I mean, that's Bart, like, at his core. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that could be one of those things about The Simpsons just not changing and remaining static, despite the fact that it's been on for so long. I mean, aside from the flanderization, the term flanderization is named after a character on The Simpsons. But, um, yeah, it made me think of something that Patton Oswalt said about the, uh, the MODOK series when he was talking about the crappy marriage that MODOK has. And he's, like, saying, as much as I love The Simpsons, if The Simpsons was less episodic and more serialized, there is no realistic scenario where Marge doesn't divorce Homer by, like, season two. 
and you just have one of those things where just everything just snaps back to the status quo at the end of 22 minutes. And yeah, when we're talking about crossing over generations, which The Simpsons has at this point, it can result in some awkwardness. We've already mentioned the giant house on the single person income and Republicans admonishing the show at the beginning and now trying to like seem hip and with it by identifying with it. And yeah, it just goes into that still when these certain things just can't change even though the world has changed around it. Not to mention Apu. Apu's in a whole other can of worms. That's a different episode. So yeah, that leads me to the next topic. What caused The Simpsons' decline in the, to begin with? The season 9 to 12 slump that just sort of kept going. Blaming Scully feels unfair to me, especially since he wrote some great episodes. We talked about them. There's some fucking bangers there. I mean, another thing that Scully wrote that I hadn't brought up yet is the uh, Omega Man sequence from Three House of Horror. I love that bit. Oh my god, yeah. Today's sermon, Homer rocks. It's probably not one thing that caused the show to decline, but what really contributed to it is that most of the classic writers and directors who made the show what it was eventually, as the years kept moving, just gradually moved on to other projects. And Conan O'Brien got his own talk show. John Schwartzwelder threw in the towel after, like, a few dozen seasons to write science fiction novels. What really was the rusty dagger was Futurama. That caused a mass exodus from The Simpsons. I love Futurama so much, though. The first season of Futurama was the tenth season of The Simpsons, and I think there was a noticeable dip after season ten. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it really isn't the premise of a family sitcom that makes The Simpsons great. It was all of the parts that were working together for the, I would say, like seasons one and two are a bit rocky. Season three is when it really starts to get going. And yeah, the way The Simpsons handles its turnover is that it tries to be as opaque about it as possible. They want to maintain the continuity, so if directors and producers and even showrunners come and go, they try to disguise that. So there's a big ship of Theseus thing occurring, because, you know, people started leaving around season eight or so, but you didn't really start feeling it until much later, because at that point, like, more than half of the planks have been replaced, and the planks have been replaced, like, three or four times since then. And I do think that's uh, one of the reasons why the Simpsons movie is generally seen as a pretty good installment by most of the Simpsons fandom because they brought all of the people from the first eight seasons back for that. It was a solid movie. Yeah, and it did have that vibe of classic Simpsons because all the people were back, even Schwartzwelder. That being said, the next thing I wrote down was, did the Simpsons actually decline? Yes. Yes. Okay, but... I'm going to position myself in the devil's advocate position for a minute or so. When was the last time you watched, are you watching Current Simpsons? No, I haven't watched Current Simpsons forever. That's part of the point I'm going to bring up. Okay. I was thinking that perhaps seasons three to eight are so beloved by millennials because so many of us watched and rewatched those particular episodes as often as we did. I would watch one to two Simpsons reruns after school for most of my childhood. Those seasons three to eight episodes are tattooed into my fucking brain. As Cheryl said, that is our love language. <laughs> it's true. There are things that our family says that my husband has to tell me was a Simpsons quote, because I don't remember anymore, because it's just what we say. Do you find something comical about the way I drive my automobile? <laughs> I, I did bond with my boss and some co-workers about just, like, speaking in our some of our favorite Simpsons quotes. I have sentimental attachment to many Simpsons gags, including some that are definitely not that funny. 
it brings a smile to my face if I hear the phrase, stupid waffle iron, it's been in the shop forever. That's not <laughs> funny. Why are we laughing? I, you know, it's funny because I was going to bring up that saying gag, except these aren't waffles. These They're are just, just square pancakes. pancakes. Which is impressive. Making a pancake square must be difficult. Maybe if you just, like, use one of those, like, it cuts, it cuts the crust off your bread, like, <laughs> stampers when you pour it in. You know, my favorite one is, ever seen a man say goodbye to a shoe? Yes, yes once. No new Simpsons episode, good or not, can compete with my memories of the season's three to eight episodes. I'd have to build new memories around the new episodes, and I don't think I have the emotional bandwidth for that now. To me, The Simpsons is a comfort watch. I put it on when I want something familiar and nostalgic. So I'm just inherently New Simpsons gross. Okay, but have you seen any of the new season? He already said no. I know, but it is gross. And it's not because it's not because of nostalgia. There's like really creepy deer people faces. Like it's not it's not the same. If you bring up the Simpsons in casual conversation, a lot of people will just turn it into a thing about when do you think it jumped the shark exactly? It has joined the ranks of Weezer, Metallica, and Star Wars. I still like all those things though. If you look at, say, all of those Simpsons meme pages and all of those shitposting groups and all of those mashup things where they take different gags from different episodes and, like, force them together, it's always seasons three to eight Simpsons, even if it's, like, Gen Z kids putting it together. It's, it's weird how canonized those particular episodes are. And once again, I, I'll reiterate, I agree with you. Seasons three to eight is peak Simpsons, and it is noticeably less funny after that. I will say this, part of the reason why, like, this is riffing off of your idea, of, which I agree with, that, you know, it's never going to hit the same because these aired when we were children. But also, like, the 3 to 8, you know, that covers the 90s. The Simpsons feels really weird when it's taken to what I interpret as other time periods, i.e. now. Um, you know, the whole thing where they did a flashback episode recently and Homer's a young man in the 90s, like just doesn't work i i, I don't know you don't i don't know how to address that problem right like should the show realize that it was an iconic product of its time and try to set itself consciously in the 90s that would be weird too but i still also don't like the idea of it being off the air it's comforting to know that there are new simpsons episodes being made even if i'm not watching them all right this is a point that i wasn't going to bring up but um you know how recent uh, seasons of The Simpsons have had, like, guest animators who were noteworthy for other shows come in and do couch gag sequences? Yep. One of them was done by, I'm blanking on the man's name, but uh, he directed, rejected, and a number of other things. He did a piece about what The Simpsons would be like if it continued airing 10,000 years into the future where human civilization is barely recognizable. And it is weird it and incredibly weird. depressing. <laughs> It sounds weird. A cyborg Homer who just says do, 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 do over and over again into an endless void. And this lump of protoplasm that sort of looks like Marge going, I still love you, Homer. It sounds like some like one of those videos you see just playing in like an art museum. <laughs> Where you're just like, I just need to sit down for a minute. And then you just wind up staring at it for like 20 minutes while it loops around again. And you're like, no, I... I still are, I need to watch it again. Wait, what did I just see? <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of context behind that. And it was really heavy and it's funny, but in a way that is very different from Simpsons humor. 
Anyways, uh, that's everything in my notes. Is there something that either of you would like to bring up about these three Simpsons Christmas episodes before we sign off? Not really. Like, they just make me feel happy and safe, I guess. I mean, we could talk about why the Treehouse of Horrors are so much more iconic than the Christmas episodes. I think part of it's due to quantity. Like, there's just so many of them, and it's expected to do it every year. And in that one, they go out of their way to make them feel special. Like, there's different couch gags, there's... Ending names are so good. Yeah, yeah, there's little joke names where they do bad horror puns. Yeah, I mean, I just... I, I think it's interesting because the Christmas episodes are definitely good, but they certainly haven't achieved the same status. And you're right, it's probably partially quantity. And competition. There aren't as many good Halloween cartoons. And also, I, I think with the Halloween episodes, they're non-canonical, so the already... They can go nuts. Yeah, yeah, the already flexible reality of The Simpsons can go nuts. And yeah, that has bled off into other episodes. They have done, like, themed episodes where they do, like, three um, gag-heavy vignettes. Like, there's one where they, like, do Bible stories. There's one where they do, like, a musical thing. And yeah, I mean, those ones are all right, but the, even those ones hit differently from the Halloween episodes. Mm. All right, that was my last thought. Okay, well, if there's nothing else, thanks for listening, everybody, and join us next time.